Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Somewhere between science and superstition. Such sights to show you. Strange Eons. Welcome to Strange Eons Radio. That's Eric Margaret over there. Uh, yes, it is. I'm Kelly Young. Uh, hey, man. Guess what? My automatic instinct is the childhood reaction of, that's what. Oh, I thought you were going to say chicken so, butt. That, that's even better. <laughs> My God, we're going four or five grades lower with that one. Well done. No, what? What's that? What's up? Uh, I turned 50 years old last week. Yes, you did. Yeah. And as you <laughs> may or may not know, I was struggling a little bit with this number. Not oh, particularly yeah. um, for any reason other than I was feeling like maybe I hadn't accomplished a lot in my first 50 years on this planet. But, um, you know, that morning I got up and I took a long look at myself in the mirror and I was like, you know what? You're still super hot. <laughs> you know, and in, and in an endearing way, I'm like that hot chick who doesn't know she's hot, which makes her even hotter. You sort know what of I'm negates about? your whole argument there, but all right. Well, that's how I am. I, I don't realize quite how hot I am. And so that makes me just a little bit hotter to everybody else. <laughs> And then I was like, you've also got a huge cock still, and it works most of the time. And uh, I was like, I think you're going to be okay, man. I don't know how you're going to be able to face it, because you're a fucking wreck. But I'm, I'm doing all right afterwards. Yeah, I don't know about either of those points. I've been staring at you too long to properly evaluate your My eyes are up here, prettiness. buddy. <laughs> so sorry to say I don't have a first-hand knowledge on Part B of your point. Not that you remember. Congratulations to you, good sir. And then last, oh, maybe it wasn't last episode, or maybe it was the episode before, I had gone on a bit of a rant about Facebook and how much I hate everybody on it and everything. And I (laughs) I realized that I'm lying because I've made some really neat friends (laughs) off of Facebook and some of the weird groups that I'm in. You know, I I collect, as you may know, a lot of 70s sci-fi toys. Uh, Basically, all the toys that I uh, had in my youth destroyed, I have now paid premium numbers to get back (laughs) and then put into storage and never play with. Uh, On some of these Facebook groups, I have made a couple of really neat friends, uh, a guy named George that I've gotten pretty close with, and a guy named Danny Williford, who's a fan of the show, actually, and has uh, sent me books and various things. Just just a really sweet guy. They did a, uh, the group that I'm in, they did a meeting of the Northwest members in, uh, in Redmond. And I decided to go and I was like, what's this shit show going to be like? And it was, <laughs> it was just a bunch of, well, middle-aged men, but yeah, the nicest well, guys on the planet. I, I don't I, think you can be too nice. much of an asshole and collect toys. <laughs> you can't have too big of a ego. I think. Okay. I think it kind of depends on the toys too. Cause if you're, if your toys are kind of ones that everybody looks at as super collectors, because I've met some wonderful Star Wars collectors, and I've met some. Yeah, See how I awesome, get what you're saying. But, but when you're talking some like Micronauts or something that's a little more niche Yeah, it's a pretty definitely. nerdy group, and I think they were all very aware of how nerdy they were. But, but some of them were actually kind of um, bigwigs in the industry. One of the guys there, really sweet guy, was uh, one of the designers when Palisades brought back the Micronauts. You know, he lives here in Washington and he was just a really nice, sweet guy. So I had a blast there, had a lot of fun talking with everybody. I wish that everybody in the area could have made it. I wish that everybody in the group could have made it. It was just a a really nice time. Is it a fairly like controllable size group? You know, just Oh no. The the gigantic the group that that I'm a part of is, you know, thousands of members. There were only maybe ten from that group in this little thing it was very much like a little not a barbecue or anything but people brought cupcakes and food and we all pitched in to pay for the rental space and just a very nice nerdy geeky time and i realized i met all of these people on facebook yeah and they're lovely people so it's really just a a a small number of assholes that gets under my skin that's the biggest problem i don't know if i told you this in person or if i mentioned this on the podcast before but if I had, eh, listen again. The breakdown of how Twitter seems to work was shown to me with, um, as you all know, I'm a Seahawks fan. So I've got uh, 
I was looking at a local sports radio guy, and he put up a thing because every time the Seahawks play, there's a whole bunch of Seahawks fans who go, "Oh, Russell Wilson sucks. Hey, he's horrible. We need to get rid of him." So he put up a poll, and the choices were: Is Russell Wilson great? Should we get rid of him? Is he overrated and shit like that? And uh, it amounted to over 80% of the people selected saying Russell Wilson is great. Right. So when it boils down to it, it's really just those 5 to 10% of assholes who feel the need to tell everybody their stupid opinions. They're a lot more vocal than the people who are fine with everything yeah, going exactly. on. So, so let me just interrupt you here because I thought of something about me again that I'd rather <laughs> talk about. And it is Shocker. that I have... Uh, I have stopped collecting all of those 70s toys, and I actually started boxing all of them up. And then right at that time, I found out that there's this group of people who are designing and making this boutique kind of toys where they are um, having them made and then releasing them in a batch of like 100 pieces Uh or something. And, And they're super cool designs and everything that harken back to the 70s aesthetics that I like. And they're incredibly expensive because there's only a hundred of them made right. at each time. And now I'm spending far more than I was on collecting these old <laughs> 70s toys. So I'm, I'm a fucking wreck, man. Well, there's some of those sometimes, like the, that exclusive Fog action figure that came out a that while was, ago. That was, was fun. Just cotton inside of... That's so cool! I don't know if it's sixty dollars cool, but it's what? really cool. Were they asking sixty bucks for that? It was something like that. It might have been less than that, but I remember Jeez. looking at it on. Maybe it was because it was on eBay and it was actually getting bids. Right. Like, okay, that's fun. <laughs> well, enough about all of that bullshit. Let's yes. talk. Uh, let's talk some serious nerdy stuff. Try something new. Okay. <laughs> I got a book, and I know that you got a book. Yes. And I haven't cracked it open yet. I mean, I've cracked it open just to look yeah. at it. It's called Frozen Hell. It's John Campbell's original manuscript for his short story, Who Goes There?, which yeah. became the basis for Howard Hawks' Thing from Another World and John Carpenter's The Thing. From the wildly successful Kickstarter yeah. <laughs> funding. Yeah, that was Man. crazy. And, and this was available in a number of of uh, formats like yeah. a super limited hardback boxed set uh there was a trade paperback version i went for the middle which was the hardback copy did you get the hardback or you yeah, got-, I got the same one because it was it was really i don't remember what the price was but i remember going for the hardback yeah i'll take that it was 25 bucks <laughs> that's what it was yeah was like, yeah okay. and i think it's retailing i mean they they printed the whole point of this was to print up enough that they could actually sell to other people too and i think right. it's 30 dollars now for the hardback if you didn't get it on the kickstarter but it's super cool it's uh, illustrated throughout by bob eggleton who if you are a fan of lovecraftian stuff or he does a ton of godzilla artwork um oh, yeah. he's a very famous artist and it's it's really damn cool, so I'm really looking forward to getting part of that. And it's Wildside Press that is uh, selling it now. Well worth checking out if you have any interest in the thing. Yeah, so what else, man? What have you been up to? Uh, well, speaking of books, it's sort of books, but I watched a video this weekend where they found Lord Byron's author's copy of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You know, that's kind of museum stuff, which fascinates me. I'm looking at this guy who's going to put it up for sale for, I think, starting at 365,000 pounds, because it's British. And he's, I know you can hold books if you've washed your hand properly and stuff like that, but this is, what, 200-year-old book that he's just holding and moving around and opening with no gloves on or anything. So my thinking is, one, that, yeah, you can do that, but it's not the best idea. Plus, you're planning on putting this up for deservedly premium price so maybe you should make everybody who's watching this think oh they're always treating this book as well as they possibly can okay whenever you watch us see some news thing on Sotheby's and they're bringing out the art they're always wearing the gloves right because it just looks right so I'm watching this going and he holds it it's a six or seven minute thing and he's holding it up and leafing through it and doing like, you're killing me man <laughs> just, just stop it would have been great if like uh, you know because the video is close on the book you're just seeing his hands on the book and everything <laughs> would have been great if you'd seen like some crumbs or a drop of ketchup or something <laughs> he just kind of thumbs and wipes it off that would have been fantastic but a very cool historical find I gotta say so, yeah. no, I didn't read that book, though. Oh, so. okay. So, Any never, others? Or show you read TV? Frank, never read Frankenstein in your life? The original, no. But oh, the, the okay. reproductions that have been made, yes, yes, I have read the book. Uh, are you keeping up with Swamp Thing? I am, no. I've, oh. I've watched another episode or two, at least. I think they're up to four or five now. I think so, yeah. 
the last one I watched introduced Ian Zering. Ian Zering from 90210. I know. I was With like, the Blue Devil movie, movie poster. <laughs> you know what? I was looking at him and going, that guy has made a deal with the devil because he looks exactly the same. No he's got to be in his 50s and he looks like he's 25. <laughs> he's kind of the reason I even watched the Sharknado movies because I watched the first one hesitantly going, what the hell is this crap? And then I'm watching him going, okay, this guy gets what kind of movie he's in. Right. And he's just having a fun time making a really stupid movie. I can get behind that. <laughs> right. And with, you know, along those same lines, he's certainly uh, playing this new character well in yeah. the series. I'm really loving this show. Yeah, it's really going to, it sucks that it's going to. I heard they're going to do a movie to cap off the whole thing, to end it or something like that now. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that yet. Yeah, I don't know. I'll if have I... to talk to my mole inside. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I've noticed it's kind of a comp. Swamp Thing itself, at least in the episodes I've watched, is almost a combo. Of the first two Rothers, it's not full Alan Moore, and it's definitely not full Ween. It's no. a little bit of both of them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Which I think is a really good idea, because Alan Moore's was way too cosmic for a short-run TV show yeah. <laughs> to really capture. And the first one was basically a, well, yeah. a more human-looking man thing. Yeah, you're right. What else? Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, I've been keeping up with yeah. this. I did not watch, I think I haven't watched the most recent one, but I did watch the one where they're like a couple weeks ago where they're kind of trapped. When uh, Fitz and Simmons are dealing with their, um, their past issues? Yes. Yes, that was very clever. At first I was watching it thinking, um, okay, this is going to be a, a solo episode for the two of them and it's not really going to move things forward very much. Uh, but it did actually yeah. move things forward and I thought it was done well enough that I, I left very satisfied with that episode, which is not how I felt going into it. About 10 minutes in, I was thinking, hmm. My my initial note was, you know, because they don't immediately tell you what's going on. So I'm kind of like, wow, they're really going to make things time travel confusing. Oh, yes, yes. And then they're like, oh, oh, I see what they're doing. Eh, well, we'll see where this goes. And yeah, the two of them are so good on screen together. And they had, it just worked. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is one of those shows that's not, let's get into in-depth of what's going on. It says, oh, it's a fun watch. Yeah. You know, um, it's executive produced by Joss Whedon, and mm -hmm. it's his brother, I think, that is the showrunner on this. Yeah. This was the most Joss Whedon-feeling mm -hmm. episode of this series, I thought. That's a good point. Yes, it really was. <laughs> and for me, that's about all I've been able to squeeze in for television this week. Got anything yeah, else? Yeah, no, me too. I would, well, I did finish off Chernobyl. Oh, right. Which, I uh, still haven't started. The first two episodes are by far the toughest watch as far as just human existence. <laughs> but uh, they, it stays compelling and brilliantly well-made all the way through. It's just excellent. That's cool. Excellent show. Should we dig into movies? I, I mean, most sure. of my movies actually were watched in service of our topic this week. And so I didn't see a lot of new stuff, but I, I watched rewatched a bunch of stuff that I thought for sure was going to be my pick. Oh, well, okay. I, I was lucky in that the... The first one I watched, which was why I suggested this, is one of those I've always wanted to see. Oh, okay. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch it for this one, and if it works, oh, well, all right. My, I've got a couple, but they're not related to this. But uh, Well, let's, let's dig in. Let me go first, then. Yep, dive um, in. One of the ones that I had, you know, the, the topic for this week is horror comedy, and I thought for sure I knew what it was going to be. And then I started looking at lists of horror comedy films. And there were things that I hadn't seen that people were giving really good reviews to. Like a movie called Detention with Dane Cook and Josh Hutchinson. Are you familiar with this at all? Ah, oh, man, it sounds familiar. but It's, I it's very recent. Know. It's like 2016, oh, okay, no, I think. Then it's not what I'm thinking. Uh, really bad effects, <laughs> bad CGI. The acting was so-so, and I, I really watched this kind of scratching my head going, what is the hubbub about this film? I, it looks like it was very low budget, so unless it was micro-budget and people yeah. are surprised that they were able to get some named stars in such a tiny-budgeted film, I don't know why you would want to watch who this was the, Sorry, who is the, the comedian that's in it again? Dane Cook. It is Dane Cook, okay. Could just be, you know, his... He had such an insanely rabid fan base for such, honestly, kind of a mediocre comedian. Yeah. That I'm sure uh, probably a lot of them still love him and just, oh, he's so good in this. 
I didn't think he was particularly good in this. And I, I have seen him in other things. I mean, he was the um, he was the cook in Waiting. Do you oh, remember right. that movie? Yeah. And I thought he was hilarious in that. That was perfect casting for him. Right. Um, <laughs> he plays the uh, principal of a high school in this one that's being overrun with demons and shit like that. And he seems more like a vice principal or cool teacher type as opposed to a leadership role. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't get the feeling this was written for him. <laughs> So, uh, so I, I would pass on that, and then one that was I was sure I was going to pick. I th- I'm not sure if you've seen Dead Ant yet, about the rock no. band that is uh, managed by Tom Arnold. It's going to a. <laughs> no, I they think they're going to. Well, there has been rock band that is coming back for a, you know hoping to make their comeback at Coachella, <laughs> and uh, it turns out they're going to Nochella. Instead, Tom Arnold has lied to them about this, and they get stuck out in this uh, nuclear devastated desert on the way there with all these ants, uh, giant ants. And holy shit! It is. I think it's fucking hilarious. Okay, it, it is uh, tongue firmly that. in cheek, and if you are in a band or friends with someone in a band, you're probably going to love this because it's just a ton of band jokes. Uh, at one point, you know, the bass player is killed first, uh, but he's out there getting killed by the ants while they're watching him. They're like, we should go save him. And Tom Arnold's like, ah, he's just the bass player. <laughs> of course, of course. That's how that always works, right? So Poor the effects are also very bad in this, but I, weirdly enough, the music is supplied by the 80s rock group Kicks, and they are really? songs that you have heard of if you know them, but they're like demo songs. They're not the versions that are on the albums. Oh, that's, so that's kind of cool. It is actually kind of <laughs> cool. And I was thinking, all right, who who in this movie has a tie to Kicks somehow? I don't know, but it it worked out very well, and the ending is very satisfying because, of course, they use rock to battle these ants. <laughs> oh shit! But I did not choose. Oh man, that. I've got to see that one. Oh wow! So, uh, <laughs> what did you watch? Well, I watched a particularly strange one. <laughs> Part of the reason I watched it was, I think they're on hiatus right now, but that eight, the 80s podcast yes. referenced this as one of the more repulsive films they've ever seen with very little redeeming quality. So I'm like, I got to check this out. Okay. And it was uh, Fulci's The New York Ripper. Oh, I have never seen this. It's pretty vile. It's pretty weird. For some reason, the kill, I haven't actually finished it. I started watching it. I'm going to come back to it at some point, but it's not. I'm not dying to come back to it. Let's put it that way. But it ha- the, the killer sounds like Donald Duck, sort of. Wait a second. When he's killing people, he makes these duck noises and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. Like, and, and it's just, it's 1982, so it's horribly misogynistic. And it's just fulci. So the violence is well done. You hmm. know, the gore is well accomplished. The Rotten's rating is 17 from critics and 54 from audience. Now, 17 from... And I'm guessing these are just critics of the day. Probably. I've never even heard of this film. I can't imagine there are re-releases or something where new critics would come in. It has... No, it had Blue Underground. Yeah, Blue Underground did a giant three-disc remastering release of it just like two months ago. Three discs? Well, one's the CD soundtrack. Oh, Which is a new trend I'm kind of liking. Yeah, that is kind of (laughs) neat. So I'm curious to finish it, but, oh, wow, it's it's an interesting view. Coincidentally, I read an article, I think, yesterday or a couple days ago where a guy was talking about the death of true exploitation films, and he referenced New York Ripper was his reference point for this is a movie with absolutely no redeeming values. It's misogynistic, it's horrible, it's violent, and it's a great, fun exploitation film, which I, I have, I'm open enough to feel that it could be that by the end. <laughs> but um, he's right about it. It is just flat exploitation, and you know that doesn't get made anymore, to the, not to the level of what this film is doing. Right. But he's not calling this as like the death knell of exploitation films. This no, it's just his example. Into, okay. Interesting. He praises the film. Wow, okay. As being a, a great example of what we've lost as far as just being exploitative and nasty for no reason. Because you know, now anymore, it's got to have some kind of a cause. There's got to be some meaning behind it or something. Whether it's a good one or a bad one doesn't matter. Just kind of try to justify being 
exploitative. <laughs> when really what you want to make is just an exploitation film. This, this guy then falls into the 54% category who think it's I a, believe a so, film. yes. Interesting. <laughs> I think I'm going to pass on that one. I'm not going to argue with you on that. What do you have up next on your list of almosts? Well, originally, when you said this, my, my go-to film for this kind of stuff would be something like Gremlins 2, because yeah. I think it's wacky and fun. I thought that most people hated it, but when I started doing research on it, it turns out there's just a rabid fan base for yeah. this film. When it first came out, you're right. It was not well-received. Right, right. And it is it is a fun little film. So if you're kind of on the fence or you saw it when it first came out, you might want to give it another try. It is almost slapsticky, But yeah. it, I think that as its own film, it works very, very well. And Joe Dante obviously set out to make that kind of movie. He, he wasn't trying to capture the themes or the feel <laughs> of the original. No. You know, and what I like to bring to this podcast is maybe a, a different film that people haven't seen very much and so Gremlins 2 was right out. I, I decided I wasn't going to do that. And so one of the films I did watch that I was convinced was going to be my go-to on this is called Night of the Comet. Do you remember oh, this yeah. movie? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think this is kind of an underseen movie and maybe yeah. unappreciated. It's from 1984. I'll just give you, because I did so much research on this, I'll give you some of the sure. stuff that I normally would. It had a budget of 700000 and a box office of $3.6 million. Not the bad. critics give it a 77%, but what? the audience only gives it a 58%. What year was that? Again? That was 84. 84. And it was written and directed by a guy named Tom Eberhardt, who did uh, Captain Ron and Honey, I Blew Up <laughs> the Kids, um, and stars Catherine Mary Stewart, who was the girlfriend in The Last Starfighter, and she was in Weekend oh, at Bernie's, yeah. and Kelly Maroney. Um, she's in Chopping Mall and Fast Times at <laughs> Ridgemont High and just a ton of television stuff. And they star as sisters who, in 1984, there's this comet passing over the Earth for the first time in 65 million years, uh, hinting that it caused the end of the dinosaur age. Sure. And it turns everyone who witnesses it into dust, but uh, our sisters didn't manage to actually go see the comet. They were stuck in a, uh, one of them was stuck in a storage container, and the other one was having sex with a kind of boyfriend in a movie theater, and they were protected from this. Uh, they're these two prototypical valley girls who, who <laughs> right. you know, everything they say is valley girl speak, and they end up going out there everyone who wasn't turned into a zombie or into a uh, red dust was turned into a zombie and so it turns into a weird zombie film but the zombies are smart and drive and have guns and all this it's just a really cool end of the world movie that's got a lot of humor and all of the humor is situational because what would valley girls do <laughs> in this situation and it's always very pretty, 1984 concept. Yeah, it's pretty stupid. The movie holds up really well, except for the awful, awful synthesizer soundtrack. I, I sometimes wonder if some of these films would be served well by um, getting like an an alternate an alternate music soundtrack made for it. This one is so early 80s oh. that it just pulls you out of all the scary scenes. But if it had been done like a regular orchestral soundtrack i think that the movie would hold up really really well i did think that the, one of the funny scenes is at the beginning uh Catherine mary stewart is this gal who's working at a movie theater and she's not very good at it she plays the <laughs> video games there she's got the high score on all the video games and she's filled up the entire screens i don't know if you remember you would you would get your high score and then a list of names would show up just three initials and she's got all of them except for like at number six is this this uh, initial the DMK, which is not her initial. So it's like CSM or something like that for nine of them and then DMK. And she's like, what? So she, she plays the game and, and gets his <laughs> name off there. At the very end, they meet one last survivor who comes tooling up in a convertible car and her sister jumps in the car with him. They take off and the license plate on the car is DMK. And I had never noticed that in all the times I had watched this movie. <laughs> So I thought it was really cute, really well written and all that. But I did then start looking around and seeing that a lot of people love and remember this movie. So yeah. it was also not what I wanted to, to bring to the table. So For years I got that one confused just because of the title with Night of the Creeps. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so. And I had thought that it was some other kind of film for a while. 
I don't know. I did not remember it being a zombie film until maybe 10 years ago when I yeah. saw it again. I, I realized, oh, this is not at all the movie I thought this was. <laughs> no, no. That's kind of my reaction because I'd seen it within the last 10 years. But no, that's a good one. Yeah, that was a good fun, film. I did not choose that one. Well, I've got another one that's not on the choice thing, but in the spirit of watching Hammer and going, you know, I kind of like Hammer films. Started to watch a couple more of them. Nice. So this year I watched the Oliver Reed uh, Curse of the Werewolf. What did you think of that? I thought it was pretty decent. It's a weird it's, one it's in that it's very weird. Yeah, it's set in, in Spain, right? I think so. Yeah, and I mean I love Oliver Reed in it. The, the problem yeah. with Oliver Reed is that you look at him and if you're just looking at him walking down the red carpet, you're like, that guy looks like he might be a werewolf. Yes, he fits the. I'll go over a little bit because I did a. You know, 50, 59 rotten for that one. So fairly, most, peop- most people agree. Critics. 50 critics, 59 audience, audience. Rotten Tomatoes, okay. Came out in 1961. Of course, it was directed by Terrence Fisher. Cause yes. It's Hammer. Anthony Hines, who also wrote a lot of Hammer stuff. The beginning, yeah, 18th century Spain. The beginning is weird in that it spends almost an entire half hour setting up of a you know 80 some odd minute movie, setting up. Oliver Reed being born. Yeah, because we kind of see him as a kid at first, right? Yeah, yeah. so there's a, yeah, this uh, beggar guy shows up at a baron's house or something like that and gets bothered by him and locked up in the tower for decades. Yeah. And he rapes and impregnates a woman. She has the kids. I go, what the hell is It's a werewolf movie, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a very, a very different origin story for a werewolf. Yeah. He, yeah, he's, <laughs> yes. it, it feels very much like that book I was telling you about a couple of weeks ago, um, the the Beast Within. Yeah, that's kind of what happens in that book too. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So it's weird. By thirty minutes into the movie, every character but that child is dead, which doesn't feel like a loss. It's not. It's not a surprising thing like what happens in Psycho or anything like that because none of them were really set up to be leads or stuff. So it's like, okay, this is weird. So the movie basically begins half an hour in. I thought that having the little kid werewolf was a really cool idea. Yeah, and, I liked uh, that too. Works really well because the parents kind of figure out what's going on, but don't really know what to do. Yeah, that's right. Um, Boy, the more you talk about this, the more I remember really liking it, mostly because it's a very non-traditional werewolf yeah. story. And he's kind of a non-traditional looking werewolf makeup style. Wise. Yeah. And, and I, the reason I, I wanted to see this one for years, sort of like Chud, it just sort of sat there going, you know, you want to watch me and I just <laughs> pick whatever shiny object I saw instead. But it's in a set of this Blu-ray set of eight hammer movies. I've got, I'm watching this, damn it. Because years and years ago, I don't, this early Fango episode or maybe Star Issue or Starlog, saw just a still of that Oliver Reed make, werewolf makeup. Yeah. I'm going, oh, and it's absolutely stuck with me. It's like, I got to see this freaking movie. I know exactly the still you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The end is very much more of a Frankenstein. It's a very different end way to end a werewolf movie as opposed to, you know, it's more of a uh, universal end as opposed to. Uh, Where the way you see werewolf movies end now? Okay, werewolf movies tend to be a more intimate. He's such a tragic figure. A werewolf is such a tragic figure because it's right. happening to him most of the time. Right, he's not a stalker like a vampire, and he's not a creature that's created. He's nature's fucked with him. So, but it's really good. I'd say it's definitely worth checking out. One of the a good Hammer film and very different. They didn't do a lot of werewolf stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say for whatever reason, Hammer jumped on the vampire stuff, and then yeah. you know there are a ton of the Frankenstein movies, yeah. fair Peter, amount of mummy, Peter Cushing. Yeah, even mummy movies, but they they didn't jump on the werewolf stuff. I wonder if that was just something they felt like they couldn't crack because of the makeup or what. Yeah, I don't know, but they did a good job here. Yeah, another almost. No, no, not for me. I'm caught up on what I've got to talk okay. about. I mean, I will day. talk a little bit about something, but I happen to know what your choice is, and it ties into that. Okay. So why don't we take a little break, and when we come back, we will discuss our picks for horror comedy. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, 
Derek M. Cook and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. New Mad Balls are so obnoxious and weird, they'll gross out the entire family. You can toss them, catch them, smash them. You'll want to collect all the Mad Balls, including the new 6 series. Just squeeze them till they ooze. They're repulsive. Totally gross. Cool. The Totally Slimy 6 series. Mad Balls. Mad Balls new 6 series. Mad Balls are all sold separately. And we're back. Yes, we are. That's <laughs> <laughs> because we're professionals. That's right, um, damn it. So this topic <laughs> is uh, horror comedies, and you chose it, which means you have to go first. All righty. Well, I went with um, uh, one that I'd wanted. Like I said, I'd wanted to see for a while. Showed up shortly after Shaun of the Dead, which was off our list. And right. should also mention we both think Tucker... Dale versus Evil is pretty damn good too, but so that was sort of an off the list kind of thing. Right. But uh, this is Juan of the Dead. What the? Juan de los Muertos, matamos a sus seres queridos. The dead. Well done. Have you seen this one? I have not seen okay. this one yet. The Rotten Tomato score was 81 for critics, 64 crowd. So it's fairly highly rated. Interesting that the crowd doesn't like it as much. Is it because Americans can't fucking read movies? Could be. It is a Spanish Cuba production in 2011. It was billed, obviously, as a remake or a version of Shaun of the Dead, which it's really not. Outside of it, sort of begins with two guys who are buddies. One's skinny, one's chubby. (laughs) But the storyline, the way it's told, the humor is all very, very different. It is obviously a a zombie apocalypse movie. But what Juan does, instead of let's go to the thing, hang out, have some beers, and the Winchester survive, he or he starts a business where you call Juan and his team of I don't know five or six people that, and they'll come out and kill your family for you oh my god <laughs> remove your zombie infestation that's actually a really original take i have not seen done in a zombie movie before and i have no idea why i haven't him and his friends are all criminals so their criminals are outcasts in the area so they've always struggled to make money and he goes this is a great way to do it and it's got a nice hero's journey with him because he starts as sort of the kind of like sean I guess you could say there's relationship here where sean sort of starts like i'm just out for myself and i'm just gonna do what I need to do to survive. Right. And, of course, you know, by the end, he's got to... becomes much more heroic. And the fight scenes are a lot of fun. It's kind of political. Just, you know, it's Cuba. So, right. <laughs> so the, the, the Cuban government is saying it's uh, not... It's, everything's fine. It's just a infiltration of Western ideals coming to <laughs> take over our country. It is not a zombie infestation. (laughs) Okay. So the news is constantly lying to them. The humor at times is really crude. There's a few jokes. I'm like, oh, damn, dude, that's like masturbation jokes and uh, gay sex jokes. So it's kind of like, okay, pushing the boundaries a little bit here, but uh, what you going to do? This doesn't sound at all like a remake of Shaun of the Dead. No, it's, it's really not. Okay. <laughs> First 10 minutes, you're kind of going, oh, I see where they're going. And then you, no, actually, I, I had no idea where you were going right. with this. <laughs> the fight scenes are incredibly well done at times. Very um, action-y. 
where they're taking out a large crowd of zombies or they get a lot of different weapons and they do crazy stuff and they're riding around on motorcycles it's just um really good ones there's a nice little i won't say what happens but a nice little holy shit what the hell just happened moment involving a sunset you ever see the french film horde yes uh that one where the guy's on top of the taxi just taking things out they're more successful than he was but it's almost got that level of zombie battles going on at times wow that's interesting i i'll have to look this up what did you watch this on uh tubi oh i was positive it was tubi Whenever I say that, then I always go back. Well, maybe it was Amazon, but right. But no, it's it's streaming free. Well worth checking out, and it is a wonderfully part of the reason it's fun to watch foreign films is they tend to take a different take on things than we do, right? And this one definitely has those moments. Or like Train to Busan has wonderfully different way of surviving the zombie apocalypse, which trains wouldn't work so well in our country work well in what was it north korea i think that or south korea that was that south film. Korean. yeah well i mean you're we're watching these films from other cultures and so yeah. all of their cultural stuff is going to show up just like you know it's why so many of our films end with guns is because that's our culture right and and why you're not in south korea you're going to see them just fleeing them from a train because it's not a gun culture over right. there well worth watching i'm glad i finally Got my eyeballs on this one. Did you mention and um, mangle the name of the writer-director? You know, I didn't. I-, I can tell what you're trying to do. You're trying to avoid the uh, <laughs> the hard parts, but I'm going to make you say it. That'll work. I can do that. Let's see what happens here. Alejandro Bruges. Close enough. That'll now, work. I just listened to a podcast interview with him, and he is one fourth or fifth of the new anthology out called Nightmare Cinema. Oh, really? And uh, I'm only about halfway through it. That's Mick Garris's new film. It's available to rent on Amazon, but if you wait, I think, just a couple of weeks, it's going to be on Shudder. And I just finished his segment, which I can't imagine any of the other segments, even though they're directed by Joe Dante, Mick Garris, a couple of other people, I can't imagine they're going to be as good as this guy's segment. It, it is. He wrote and directed it, and it is, it's really well directed. That's part of why it works so well, because it yeah. just flows really he's, well. He's got an amazing energy in the short film. And in the podcast, he was talking a lot about making One of the Dead and how that there's, there wasn't any kind of horror, Cuban horror culture in film down there and his film came out the authorities were not happy with it they basically (laughs) his his agent told him if you've got something else you'd like to make like maybe in another country or something (laughs) now would be a good time to pursue that dream Uh, the film did very very well it had a budget of I think three and a half million dollars and it made a lot more worldwide I don't know how it did in Cuba but he did say that there was just nothing like it when he made it in Cuba. He and his friends were big horror fans, and they could never get their hands on any kind of horror films. Yeah, and now cool. the, um, they're having a huge zombie craze in films in Cuba. Not in that they're being made, because the government is not all ah. about that, but in that they're um, shipping just every single zombie movie over to Cuba now, and they're, they're just loving them. That's fantastic. It was funny because I knew you were going to pick this, and then I heard the interview with him just yesterday, I think. (laughs) And I was like, wow, this is interesting stuff. Timely. Yeah, I also did a couple episodes of From Dusk Till Dawn. Right. (laughs) I I can't see. What am I looking at? Oh, oh, the name. name. (laughs) Alexis Diaz de Villegas. Villegas? Yeah, sure. Sounds good to me. Yeah, I again, like you just said with the horror thing, I I don't know if this may be the first Cuban film I've seen. I'm not sure what their what the Cuban film scene is like overall. You didn't see a but dirty dancing a few. Cuban nights. Actually, no, I did not. <laughs> that surprises me. It's got a stellar cast of really good good people. It's just an incredibly well made film, and it's kind of neat to see that to hear that he is uh, in a culture that didn't uplift the idea of yeah. making movies like this, but he was still able to pull a movie as well put together as this one is. 
So. Yeah, I can't wait to see it now. You know, he lives full time in Los Angeles now, so <laughs> he's not making movies in Cuba. <laughs> and it sounds like there's a, a reason for that. Sure. Yeah, he was. It was interesting in the interview because Mick Garris was in the, in the in the interview, and he was talking about working on Amazing Stories and all of this. Oh, Who was that? Was that Alejandro? Was the director? Yes. He basically stopped him, and he he said, "What is?" This amazing stories you're talking about. Oh, and Mick yeah. then has to explain how, uh, for a while, there was a television show with the biggest directors in the world doing, you know, 48 minute mini movies in their own style every week. And Alejandro, you could tell he was near tears. Like, how, how do I get my hands on this kind of stuff? This just was not available to me as a child. That's fantastic. Yeah. So <laughs> interesting stuff. Good choice. I really want to check that one out. Yeah. Well, I chose then for my yes. film, after watching all of those other ones, I uh, started looking through again. It, you know, it was going to be Night of the Comet, and then something clicked with me with these two Valley Girls, and I was thinking, wait a second, there's something else that I think I want to talk about more, because for some reason, I don't think very many people, even horror fans, know about this movie, and it is called The Final Girls. <laughs> Bloodbath is the granddaddy of all campsite slasher films. Max's mom plays Nancy, this shy girl next door. Nice legs. What time they open? It's cool you get to remember your mom this way. At least I get to see her on the anniversary of her death, even if she is being chased by a psycho. Wait, wait, wait. Selfie time. Two. How do we get out of here? Movies like this end when the final girl kills the bad guy and the credits roll. That's Paula. That's the final girl. We just have to stay with her till the end of the movie. Um, guys, what's happening? Why am I colorblind? Am I having a stroke? Or a flashback? I wonder if all this blood is just corn syrup, you know? Like these characters are walking around with just corn syrup in their veins. Oh, no. Oh, God, that's blood. I know in the movie you're supposed to die, but that doesn't mean you have to, right? What do we do now? We fight. That's a hell of a movie, man. Yeah, it's from 2015. <laughs> so the budget was 4.5 million dollars. I could wow. find no inter- or no uh, information on box office, but I think that's because it was mostly a film festival darling, and yeah. then went right to streaming services. Yeah. You can find it on Amazon Prime to rent right now. For a while, it was free. Um, I actually have a copy of it because I like it that much. Rotten Tomatoes score for critics was 72% and audience 70%. Wow. The director is Todd Strauss Schulson, and I thought it was very interesting when we get into what this movie is about to note that his newest movie is Isn't It Romantic with Rebel Wilson and Chris Hemsworth, where she gets in an accident and winds up in a romantic comedy movie. I'm like, well, this guy's got a theme that he likes to go back to, I guess. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> uh, it was written by M.A. Fortin, who I could find nothing of real import that he's... And also Joshua John Miller, who we have spoken about uh, in the episode when we talked about Near Dark, because he is the kid from Near Dark. His brother is Jason Patrick from... Oh, okay. The Lost Boys, yeah. and his dad, of course, is Jason Miller, who played Father Karras in The Exorcist. Damn. And his, and his mom was uh, some kind of playmate who was also in uh, Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill. So this is a very <laughs> uh, Hollywood royalty family. Hollywood cult film royalty. Right. <laughs> um, so listen to this cast, you guys. It stars Thaisa Farmiga. Now, she was the young daughter in American Horror Story yeah. Murder House, and she's been in all the American Horror Stories, I think. She was in The Nun, and she is the very much younger sister of Vera Farmiga, who I love so much from The Conjuring movies and oh, okay. even this last Godzilla. Uh, it's got Malin Ackerman, who was Silk Spectre in Watchmen. She was just recently in that rock movie, uh, Rampage. Adam Devine, who you recognize from Workaholics and Pitch Perfect. Alexander Ludwig from Vikings and The Hunger Games. Nina Dobrev, who is the stunningly beautiful woman from The Vampire Diaries. Aliyah Shakat, maybe in Arrested Development. 
and Thomas Middleditch from Silicon Valley, who you'd probably most know actually from the Verizon commercials. <laughs> that is it's, that is what he's doing right now. Yeah, yes. it's a crazy cast where you're just like, oh, I know every single one of these people. Yeah. Uh, Farmiga plays Max, who is the daughter of a semi-famous scream queen from the 80s, and uh, her mom has died in a car accident, and they never really had any closure with some of the things they were going through. And Max agrees to go to a screening of one of her movies, Camp Bloodbath. Um, (laughs) Her mom, one of the many counselors who gets killed in this movie... Uh, when the theater catches on fire, they have to escape, and the quickest way out is through the screen, and they, they cut a hole through the screen, and they end up in the movie. It's, it's kind of a silly premise, but it works really well. Now, this sounds kind of like uh, The Last Action Hero, and if The Last Action Hero had followed some of these rules, I think it would have been a, a much better movie. Because they have to make their way through the storyline of this film to survive. So in the, in the last action hero, when they go into uh, the world that, that uh, Schwarzenegger lives in, they can just go wherever they want. It's yeah. this gigantic world. Yeah, instead but, of being a film, it's sort of like a Grand Theft Auto video game or something. Yeah, it's yeah. an alternate universe, basically. Yeah. This, they try to escape the movie, and when they like try to run off screen, they just end up showing up on the other side of the screen <laughs> and stuck in this film. So they have to go through the storyline of this film, which is a typical Friday the 13th type thing with camp counselors who teased and bullied a kid and then um, burned him, and he has come back to exact revenge. It's not as gory as it should be, and that's because it's that's a PG-13 film, which is a bummer. It's got some unique and interesting kills, mostly by accident, as these as our heroes are trying to save the counselors, especially <laughs> this gal's mom, Max's mom. This is one of those movies where I teared up a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, there's some amazing use of the song Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes. Apparently the writers wanted to use Madonna's Like a Prayer, and they contacted her for whatever reason probably because she's insane. She does not allow that song to be licensed for anything. She offered them any other of her songs. And they were like, no, we want this one. And when that didn't happen, the director chose Betty Davis Eyes. The writers were against this, but he had a vision and it works really well because it evokes some real emotion throughout the film. Um, There's all these fun things that happen in the film, like they have a flashback and the our kids get stuck in this flashback right. and it's this weird effect where the screen starts dripping on them and then suddenly they're in black and white and they're freaking out because everything's in black and white and they can hear uh, the person narrating the flashback they're in. There's a great scene where they get stuck in slow motion but they realize they're in slow motion. When the killer shows up, it's got a very typical ch sound that accompanies him but they can hear it so they know when he's close <laughs> so it's um just got these really neat in jokes and rules that they make and of course the the humor is when things go awry they decide they're going to trap jason and uh all of the traps end up backfiring on them and it's just one of these fucking super underrated films or maybe not underrated because i think the people who have seen it love it oh yeah it's just not been seen by a lot of people. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I'm like, why isn't this streaming on Shutter? This is a film that they should be all over. I don't remember who put that one out, who the production company was. but yeah, uh, I can't remember that they either. They didn't know what they had. Whoever, had. whoever released it didn't know what they had. Yeah, it's excellent in its execution and the performances and... Um, yeah, it's, it's got some serious acting power behind it. Yeah. These are all really good actors. And the reason I think that the, uh, the Betty Davis eyes works better, and I don't know if this is what the director maybe came to the conclusion, but when I hear Like a Prayer, I see that amazing, iconic video. Oh, yeah. She was at the height of her powers, and this was kind of a controversial song and yes, video and definitely. all that stuff. It's got a lot of baggage with it. I don't even know if there was a video for Betty Davis Eyes. There is. Okay. Yeah. But I, I don't remember it at all. It brings much earlier me back. in yeah. the 80s. So It brings me back to whenever that song came out, 81 or 82 or something like that, and it just, it just evokes in me a sense of 80s nostalgia, which works perfectly for this yeah, film. It does. I think they shot themselves a little bit in the foot with the PG-13 yeah. reach because they're making fun of 
all R-rated movies. Nothing they're making fun of is PG-13 world, really. Right. I know there's a huge contingency of horror fans that won't just flat out won't watch anything that's PG-13. Yeah, and uh, I, so. I know that the idea was they thought they'd get more eyes on this, and maybe they were hoping for a theatrical release or something like that, and that was the the thought process behind it. But if you know that you're doing film festivals and then going straight to vid, go R. Yeah. Go yeah, R right yeah. It is an excellent film. It's well-earned in what they do. And it does one of the most important rules of any weird fantasy show like this is it creates rules and follows them. Yes. That was what was so interesting was the rules they created. So, uh, I, and I just realized I, I gave away the ending of the film. So edit that shit out when you get back to it. <laughs> Which part was that where you talk about the Yes. I'm tempted to just go to edit that out and then come back and go that part where you mentioned beep. (laughs) Yeah, do that. All right. I think that's our episode, right? Yeah. Okay. Hey, thanks everybody for um, the rating and reviewing us. We really appreciate that. Check us out on strangeeonsradio.com. Yes. And you can go there to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Yes, that's where. You can get everything. Uh, we really fucking love hearing from you guys. Uh, shout out to Ron Forbeck and Danny Williford, John, George Vaughn, and uh, so many of the people that contact us and say, hey, I really loved this episode. Yeah. Have you seen this? You know, Aaron Besson and I'm having a private conversation with after every episode, and he's <laughs> like, have you seen this movie? And so stuff like that nice. really turns my crank, and I really appreciate it and all the kind words. So that means that I get to choose, right? Yes. You're up, sir. All right. I've got kind of a wild one for us this time. I want to go with Sword and Sorcery. I love Sword and Sorcery. I know you do. I think we both love Sword and Sorcery. I think we can agree, though, that um, Conan has to be off the... Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely Conan. And the the wonderfully powerful Conan 2. Conan the Destroyer? (laughs) I'll let that one go in if you can make a good enough argument for it being a a good film. I have... No, I won't. I can guarantee you that right now. (laughs) Okay. So that's your guys' homework. Um... Come up with a sword and sorcery movie that you would like to talk about or talk to us about, and we'll see if we all match next week. See ya. All right, bye.